Good morning. We continue in our, our reframe series. We're, we're looking at Paul's answer to a group of religious teachers. We call them Judaizers, or they're called the circumcision faction or party, who have come into uh, the churches in Galatia and have said that faith in Christ alone was not enough. That you also had to be circumcised, that you had to follow the law of Moses. And so in this section of chapter 3, Paul's argument centers around, is it by promise you relate to God, or is it by performance, particularly performance of the law, that you relate to God? And what he's doing is saying that the promise supersedes and precedes the pretty dramatic giving of the law to Moses, that Abraham is 430 years before Moses. And so he's having them look at the Old Testament and basically saying, not only do you not understand the gospel, you don't understand the Old Testament. You don't understand that you've misunderstood even the purpose of the law. And so in verse 19 of chapter 3, Paul actually asks this question, Why then the law? And he says it was added because of transgressions. Until the seed, that's Jesus, until the, not the descendants, but the, the descendant would come to whom the promise had been made. And then he asks in verse 21, is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could make alive, then righteousness would indeed come through the law. But the scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin so that what was promised through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So when we look at this passage, this Galatians 3, this argument of Paul, Paul is reminding us that, that the true standing with God, the right standing with God, comes by promise. This promise was the promise God made to Abram, and it was a covenantal promise. And he's referring us back to Genesis 15, where God tells Abraham to, to take a sacrifice. Abraham knows exactly what to do. The, the animals that God prescribes... Uh, a, all um, uh, are cut in half. They're lined up. This is a promise, and it's a it's a contract. It's a will. It's legal. And uh, and the promise is, is Paul. Paul is saying this promise supersedes everything. It's an everlasting promise. It's a promise without end. And so this promise. Uh, particularly according to this Genesis 15 cutting of the covenant with Abraham, where only God walks through the pieces of the sacrifice, it doesn't rely on Abram. doesn't rely on anyone but God. See, even, even the promise being made is, is, is God is saying, I will quit being God before I will break this promise. I will die before I break this promise. And what was the promise? Well, to bless Abram 
through this one particular descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that descendant, he would offer the promise he's making to Abram. He would make it to the whole world. The fulfillment of the promise, the enacting of this will, this will that is in force, was enacted by the death of Jesus on the cross. This promise is so beautiful. I know it's kind of messy when you think of the sacrifice and cutting animals in half and bloody but it really is very powerful, very beautiful that God says, if I do not fulfill this promise, I will be cut in half like these animals. What happened to them will happen to me. That the eternal God would become killable. And he not only took it on himself in the sense that he was saying, if I break my promise, but the beauty of what Paul is saying and what, what this picture of cutting the covenant uh, brings to us is that God said, I will even take your disobedience. I will even take your inability to keep the covenant and I will pay the price for that. So God in the person of Jesus, the seed, the person of Jesus Christ makes a covenant with us to bless us, to bring us into right standing with him, to be under the favor of of God, to be accepted by the Father by promise. He makes that covenant. He keeps that covenant. He even takes the curse of the covenant because we can't keep it on himself. And then he gives to us the benefits. And what he asks of us is to believe, to receive, to make that promise the framework of our whole life. That's why we're calling this the Reframe series, is that you would begin to say, I live by promise, not by my performance. So, what Paul is doing in this passage, and this is, this is so crucial, he's pointing out to the Galatians the impossibility that God, having made this promise in such a one-sided way, that God would then add to it, when he never made Abram walk through the animals, then God would never add obedience since he didn't give it to Abraham that it was conditioned on obedience, he would never make that a part of the demand now of his covenantal promise. He is the guarantee of the promise, not our obedience. And so what Paul is saying is you've misunderstood the purpose of the law. The law does not have in it an addition to the promise, but it's, it's about something completely different. And God's purpose in giving the law um, that, that, Abraham, um, that uh, Paul is bringing to the Galatian Christians, the purpose is very different. And there's a danger here that Paul is, is working with. It's a danger of misunderstanding the history of God, how God redeems his people. You see, God, God is a God who his default setting is to bless. Uh, this blessing is not achieved by obedience to the law because by obedience to the law, you don't deserve blessing. You actually deserve the curses. So Paul is saying, look, you began this whole life 
of acceptance with God, this life of intimacy with God by the Holy Spirit. Why now are you trying to attain it by human efforts? So he's saying, if it began with grace and was given to you as a free promise, then it must also continue in grace and with a free promise. But as soon as you start thinking that your relationship with God, your intimacy with God, your acceptance by God is through performance, it ceases to be a gift from God. And so the acceptability before God that we can enjoy is the same acceptability that the ancient Israelites could have enjoyed, but they never did because they misunderstood um, it's common, you see, for people who are religious or people who come even come into a Christian life that they receive the idea of Christ as a free gift, but then they begin to think they got to look beyond Christ and they have to look to their own works and their own efforts. It's easy to start thinking my effort, my human effort is going to in some way result in a performance that will give me a sense of acceptability before God. I, I hear this a lot of times with people. They'll say, are you prayed up? Well, that's performance. You know, are you, you know, do you, are you being obedient? Again, that's a sense of performance. So, so in other words, my sense of assurance, my sense of intimacy, my sense of oneness with Christ is coming out of my effort instead of saying, you know, even if I'm not prayed up, that's not the basis of my intimacy with God. It's not the, it's not the basis of my, my blessing and my favor before God. It, Jesus is prayed up. Jesus is performed up. And, and every time you go back to performance and say, well, God must not be blessing me. God must not be uh, taking care of me or whatever it might be. It makes you very insecure. Performance cuts away assurance, and it also leads to either despair, I haven't performed well enough, or pride that says I've performed better than, than well enough, and I should, I should be able to demand, or I should have more control over what God does in my life. The, the people who are bitter with God are performance people. The people who are angry at God, they're performance people. They think somehow in their pride that they have achieved something where God owes them something. The people who are un unable to pray, who are ashamed, who are feeling guilt and unable to draw near to God, it's also performance because they think they haven't performed enough. You see, the, the beauty of the, of the promise is it doesn't depend on you. If you're in need right now, you can go to your Heavenly Father on the basis of the performance of Jesus Christ because you go in His name, not yours. And the, the Son is always welcome in the Father's presence. And you are always welcome in the Son. And as long as you are going according to the promise. You see, if you're going according to your performance, even if you think you've well performed, you have no basis for acceptance. If you're going on the basis of performance, you're going to be 
uh, a roller coaster or a seesaw of up and down in your relationship with God. Um, God is not looking to your performance for your acceptance. And Paul says in many ways you, you can see this in the fact that the promise came 430 years before the law was ever given. And the law does not set aside that the basis and source of blessing is the promise of God. And then you might ask, and I, I've asked this, and okay, so what relationship or what point does the law have? That's what Paul is trying to uh, express to us. Well, in verse 19, it said, well, the law was given because of transgressions until Christ came. See, the, the law did not, this is, this is such clear teaching in the scripture. The law was never a way of salvation. The law only came to reveal sin. Its main purpose was always to show us how deep our problem is. We are lawbreakers. And to prove that we cannot be the solution since we're not able to be law keepers. If you cannot keep the law perfectly, then the law cannot be your solution. And, <clears throat> and so Paul goes on to say in verse 21, he says, God never intended the law to impart life. Otherwise, people could have become righteous through it. But all you have to do is just read the scriptures. And you'll realize that those who had the law, they did not keep it. They did not, they did not follow it. They could not follow it. If you read every prophet, the prophets are, are bringing the truth of the law into the lives of the people and saying, here's where you're failing. Here's where you're not living up to this. And, and if you go back and you look, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they end up killing him. Jeremiah, they try to kill him. They're not able to, but they tried very hard to kill Jeremiah. Uh, Jezebel wanted to kill Elijah. Um, so you can see that the law did not bring life. It did not impart life. It, it actually, Paul literally says that the scripture imprisoned all the world to sin. Now, this is not a, a function we, we focus on very much about the Scripture, but Paul is probably remembering his own experience prior to conversion. He had been this very self-satisfied Pharisee until he began to realize that as hard as he had worked to be a righteous man, he was filled with coveting and envy. And he, and he says in Romans 7, 9, he says the commandment came home. In other words, the law made him see and feel that he was morally helpless. Now, no one worked harder to keep the law than Paul did. He was in a competition to be the most righteous man in the world. And yet, when he saw his heart by the law, he saw he was morally helpless. He wasn't just a sinner. He was a prisoner of sin, and he was helpless to free or cure himself. And what Paul is saying is that in that moment, he saw the purpose of the law. The law was not brought about to make us right with God, but to reveal how, how not right we are with God. 
and how he goes on, Paul goes on to talk about how he falls short of the will of God. So it doesn't matter how much extra effort you put in being under sin's power, you're just you're just fighting against something that has overpowered you and even in your fight it makes it worse not better. So what Paul is saying is that the law shows us that we are we are prisoners of death, we are prisoners of sin. And when we see the law for what it really is, it says you cannot rescue yourself. There must be someone else who rescues you. So it has the power to show us we're not righteous, but it never gives us the power to be righteous. So and one of the one of the ways you can see this really clearly in the in the very writing and purpose of the law is that though God had given them the perfect moral law, he still gave them a sacrificial system. You see, if you could keep the law, there would be no need for sacrifices. But because it's impossible to keep the law, then God put into the system sacrifices to atone for the ways in which they would break the law. So righteousness, Paul says, from the beginning, from its very purpose, could not come by the law. So anytime that you begin to think, you're, I'm getting a little better, I'm getting a little more righteous, you've missed the point of the law. The law shows us our sin so that we might really turn to the promise and we might, might receive the fullness of the effects of the promise that is for those who will believe. In other words, you're not more blessed because you perform better. You're more blessed when you have greater faith in the promise, when you believe that the promises of God are the basis of your life. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The Lord is the sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If you abide in me, Jesus, relationship, and my word abides in you, understanding who he is, what he wants from you. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask what you will and it shall be done for you. If you ask anything in accordance with my will, it shall be done. These are, these are the promises of God. This is the kind of thing that, that you begin to say, let me hold on to this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> the ways of the Lord uh, are only discovered as you begin to say, these are my promises. This is, this is the basis. This is the resource of my life. So the law itself, Paul gives two uh, he gives two metaphors, and the first is a prison guard. So it says that we're held prisoners by the law. Uh, it means like a military police guard upon us. And the second is that the law is a tutor under, under whose supervision we live. And the whole, the whole of it is basically saying, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Um, so the supervision of your life, you know, if you've, you have felt in a way like the law has restrained you or the, the moral uh, code or, or, or culture that you've lived in somehow has, has uh, kept you, you know, from freedom or whatever it was, that's really its purpose is to show you 
the restraint of the law and it, and the relationship with the law is never intimate it's always based on rewards and punishments so that the main emotional control of law is fear of failure fear of punishment and so when you realize that every other religion is basically a law-based religion then you realize that that the the emotion behind religion and performance is fear and pride but what what it what you experience is bondage what you experience is restraint like for example if if i were to say to you you cannot you you cannot have anger you must not be angry but you're angry so the most the most you can do is feel in bondage to not having anger and the best you can do then is to repress or suppress your anger and to play like you're not angry that's not freedom restraint is not freedom now in some ways you might if you if you think deeply about this restraint is better than just letting it loose because then then you become you, you begin to have consequences in society you begin to have consequences in your family your friends and all that but just having restraint is not life having restraint means that that at some point the valve is going to bl blow the steam is going to come forth and instead of being free you're actually more in bondage than ever and so to live by fear of punishment to live by fear in general is to live in bondage and so the purpose of the law according to paul is one it shows us our bondage but number two is it instructs us it says it's our tutor it instructs us i mean listen to some of the instruction of the old testament love the lord your god with all your heart we, we are to be, Isaiah 51 says, people who have the law of God in our hearts. So the law, if we're really listening to it, continually emphasizes a need for righteousness, a power, a love for God that is beyond ourselves and is beyond the law itself. So for example, take that one, love the Lord your God with all your heart. The law can tell you that, but the Lord can't the law can't make you do it. It can't give you the power. It can give you the fear of not doing it. It can tell you you aren't doing it, but it can't give you any power to do it. This is why Paul is so adamant about this, because the only way to truly love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength is to believe the promise that you're absolutely accepted. You're beloved of the Father. He knows you just as you are, and he loves you unconditionally. To know that you're forgiven completely, that your debt is fully paid, that you don't have to perform, but you have to believe and receive. And then you see that love, that acceptance, that forgiveness then produces in you a love which actually can satisfy a law that you cannot satisfy on your, on your, own, on your own. And also... The very spirit of love, the spirit of Christ dwells within you, lavishing the love of the Father on you. And it's only in that relational, not the impersonal sense of the law, but the relational sense of intimacy 
with the Father through the Son, expressed in the person and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is why it has to be of grace. So, you know, what happens to many of us is when we become Christians, we try with all our heart, with all the effort that we possibly can, to perform, uh, you know, perfect religion, to be extremely religious. We try to mend our ways. I can't tell you the number of people who have come to me over the course of my ministry and said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit doing this, and I'm going to quit doing this, and I'm going to start doing that. And, and the thought is that by resolving to be very good and by resolving to be very religious, that then they could, they could procure the favor and the blessing of God in their life. But the problem is that when someone does this of their own human effort, even if they're filled with emotion, because they have experienced something of God, they've experienced something of Christ, they've experienced something of the Holy Spirit, but they begin to respond to it and think, now I can perform, now I will perform. And what happens is they go on an emotional roller coaster up and down until finally they crash, and then they wonder if their whole salvation was real, they wonder if God is real, they run, wonder if the whole thing is real, because now they're very dry. And now they're very down. Now this can last for, they, they can... They can sometimes go on that religious high for a while, years or whatever. Most people, it's months. And they crash. Now, at that point, either they just, they just become kind of numb and say they're Christians, but don't go any further in their relationship. Or they have to seek and say, there's got to be more than this. You know, spiritual dryness is always, always a symptom of human performance, human effort, of religious zeal without knowledge. The dryness is not God's fault. It's always ours. And so if, you see, you base your assurance, if you base your intimacy, if you base your blessing and favor on performance, then you're going to start seeing places where you fail to perform. You're going to see other people that make you angry because they're not performing. And you're going to put things on God that he never promised. And, and so what happens is you almost have to have these disillusionments. You almost have to go through this period of recognizing, hey, I've got some of the gospel, but I'm not really framing my whole life by the gospel. Uh the scripture says it this way, the law locked us up until faith was revealed. Once faith had come, we were no longer under the supervision of the law. Our efforts to gain God's approval by obedience to his law show us that we must go beyond the law to find that approval. So what happens is when somebody crashes in their, in their performance, in their human effort, when they experience spiritual dryness, what has happened is they've, they've tried to earn God's favor. They've tried to deserve God's blessings. And they, and they come to a place where, the, where their work and their effort is not earning, and so they become dry. The only way out of that is, is to realize that the, the whole thing was faith from start to finish. To have blessing of God is to receive by faith. To have the favor of God is received by faith. And so it is a whole new learning thing. It's not an earning thing. It's a whole new learning thing. How do I live by faith in the promise? 
How do I live in certainty and expectancy of what God will do in every circumstance in my life? How do I acknowledge and activate his nearness to me apart from earning, apart from trying to have my security on the basis of whether I'm spiritual today or not spiritual, obedient or not obedient? So in some ways it helps to have an understanding of our relationship to the law. The first thing that that is important, and I think Paul goes at this in many places, but the the law, not not the sacrificial system, not the the dietary restrictions, but the, the, the moral aspect of the law. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. You shall not bear false witness. All of those things, you see, they, they are God revealing his own character. So, there, so the law is very instructive in regards to the character of God. God is always faithful. So he, asks, he calls you into a faithfulness and relationship with him and to covenant love with him and to learning what it means to not only be loved but to love in covenant love. God calls you as a person not, you know, to honor life, to see life as sacred because he is the giver of life and the life you have is given by him. So he says, do not kill. Take life seriously, he says. Do not steal. He, he's, he is the God who will provide. You don't need a self-salvation strategy of stealing and you don't need a self-salvation strategy of lying. I heard a bit recently, I like to listen to comedy on uh, on the radio, and I was listening to this bit where this very famous Jewish comic was making fun of the law of the Ten Commandments. And he was making fun of the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet. And, and he was going off, he's a very brilliant comedian, very funny, but he missed the whole purpose of, of, that, of that law. You see, all, almost all of the sin in our lives come from that one thing our dissatisfaction with what we have and our envy of what someone else has. This was the very law that brought Paul to Christ because he wanted what Stephen had. Stephen had the glory of God radiating from his face like Moses had after he'd come out of the tent of meeting. And Paul knew it immediately. That's what I've been looking for my whole life. He has it. I don't have it. So Paul's covetousness then led to kill Stephen. See, either, Paul either had to accept the message of Stephen or he had to kill the messenger. And he chose to kill the messenger. See, to covet leads you to kill. To covet leads you to adultery. To covet leads you to lie. See, there's a, there's a character of God being manifest in the law. And, and why can God put such a law upon the earth? Well, because we're made in his image. And our, our lives should reflect his character. So there's a graciousness that God revealed his moral character in the law. But Paul is saying, the more you look at the law, the less, the less confidence you're going to have to actually believe you could keep it. And so it has to go back to grace and it has to go back to faith. Now, why am I saying this? Because the only people who can ever really take the law seriously are those who relate to God by promise. If you know you're forgiven, if you know you're accepted, then you don't have to rationalize. You don't have to excuse your lying, your lust. You don't have to excuse your covetousness. You don't have to do any of that because you can go to 
the one who has forgiven you and accepted you and say, heal me, cleanse me as your child, as a son, as a daughter, because I'm not saved by my works, then I can admit where my works fall short. See, in a way, if you have to obey the law to be accepted by God, you will hate the law and you'll lie about the law. But if you really know you're accepted and forgiven and you know that the law reflects the beautiful character of our God, then you long to be truthful. You long to be faithful. You long to be content and grateful. And the only way you can do that is if someone rescues you. The one who rescues you is Jesus, and he gives you his spirit, and his spirit produces fruit in you that allows you to be faithful, truthful, content in all things, particularly content in Christ and in his promise.